Welcome, everybody, to Mormons on Mushrooms. Uh, just a reminder that this is a storytelling podcast where we discuss alternative methods for healing from trauma and seeking a more fulfilling life. A lot of times on the podcast, we discuss triggering topics, and we ask that you make your personal mental health top priority. Uh, lastly, the opinions offered by our guests don't necessarily reflect the opinions of the hosts. Sit back, buckle up, and enjoy. Well, Christine's pretty awesome, huh? Yeah, we keep finding some cool people, man. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, you know, it's it's funny that you say that because there have been times, you know, we, we, we've got this big list of people who have reached out to us and are willing to come on the podcast. And, and you know, we'll also have just things that sort of serendipitously happen where, you know, the, the stars align and we can meet with them. But yeah, Christine was, that, that, was, a, that was a really rejuvenating conversation, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, so Christine, she's a, a certified uh, integration coach. She's been doing psychedelics for a long time. And she, but what I really love about her, it's not that she's just been doing it for a long time, but she, you can tell she's integrated. Like she integrates yes. her experiences, not just her plant medicine experiences, but she's like, we talk a lot about integration in this episode and it's like integrating life, integrating any type of an experience. So, you know, we, I think we even talk about like how like in yoga, you know, Shavasana is like the, probably the, one of the most important things you can do because you're integrating it at the end, you do the work and then you allow the integration and allowing that space. That's right. It's, it's, it's funny because she is a, she's a yoga instructor as well. And we don't really touch on yoga. I don't think at all during the, during the conversation, but you can see how she's applied, you know, the principles that she's, that she's learned from being a yoga teacher to her work as an integration coach. I love that we really hit on the importance of integration because, you know, I think that we talk about it d during the conversation where, you know, that I went through a, a period where I was just doing as many trips as I possibly could to try to be like more familiar with the the medicine and really kind of lost sight of the importance of now the real work is done in, in integrating those, you know, those little revelations that you have or, or the cool experiences that we have, or even, even the dark trips, you know, we kind of get into that a little bit. It's all about integrating that into your life and, and becoming kind of whole with that as we work through some of these, uh, you know, challenges with our psyche and our, our subconscious and man, what a, she is just so pleasant and easy to talk to. You know, yeah. we, we keep getting so lucky where, you know, it, it's a little bit, you know, with technology, we're all in different places and we just have these boxes and stuff like that. But gosh, it just feels like a little conversation amongst friends sitting around a, a campfire or sitting on some couches, you know, and just enjoying that. I, I really loved that conversation. I didn't even, I was kind of like, reluctant to to join this conversation because I was kind of in a as you know I was kind of having a, a little bit of a, a tough not just day but a couple of weeks and man she she helped facilitate just bringing both of us to a higher plane and I mean afterwards we called each other and we just we were just gushing about how great that conversation was yeah it, it just transformed our day right like it really uh, did yeah and I, I love that as kind of like when we have those episodes where we leave and just feel recharged and rejuvenated and, and this is one of them, 
Um, I mean, I think it, we, we even brought up the fact, you know, speaking a little bit more about the integration piece is like, and speaking of, you know, doing medicine a lot, if, if your goal is to be a psychonaut and do all the drugs and go and live in that realm, have yeah. at it, go, yeah. you know, happy cells, go sell the astral plane and enjoy it. I think a lot of our listeners are the type that want to live in both realms or definitely want to live in this realm. And how do they take those experiences and integrate it in their lives? And I think you'll walk away from this conversation knowing how to do that better. Yeah, exactly. You know, we, I think that we talk a lot about um, just on the podcast. I think we talk a lot about the importance of safety, um, not just in the, in the space or in, in the medicine space, but just, you know, a big part of us trying to uh, heal or, 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 or people who are trying to uh, come to terms with and, and maybe overcome traumatic experiences, you know, you can't do that unless you're in, unless you're in a safe setting, a safe environment. And we're, I'm so glad that we spent time talking about that because we can't, I don't think we can bang that drum enough that this is all fun. It's all well and good. It's all good to integrate. It's good to have a, a trippy experience, but you can't really fulfill that. You can't really totally experience that if there's not that safe setting. And I, I, I like that she, she really hammers that home. I love that. So enjoy this setting we've created with Christine. I think you'll like it before then. I mean, we'll just plug Mormon Palooza again, keep doing it and uh, tickets keep getting sold. And we're, I'm just, I, I booked my flight, finished the song. We're, we're ready to go, man. Yeah, I think we're, I think we're ready. I'm excited about it. I, I got to, uh, I got to practice a little bit or play with Tess uh, a few nights ago. And I think it's going to be a magical experience. I, I can't wait for Mormon Palooza. I hope, hope to see everybody there. Well, and one more thing about Tess, I keep listening to that song that she sent to us, Excommunication or. Uh, oh yeah. It's a good one. That's going to like bring the house down then there. Mike, I gotta, I gotta just interrupt you on that one and say that I keep listening to the new song that you wrote and you sent to me. I can't oh, really? wait. Yeah. I'm it's excited about song. that one. Yeah. I'm excited, man. I've been working with some stuff on it too. I think it's going to get, it's going to be fun. It's going to be, I think we're going to channel some ancestors with that song. It's going to be good. Oh, hell yeah. Here we come. <laughs> we bring the ancestors and we'll come dance away, you know, with, 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 with them, you know, if that's not too weird. I don't, I think it's, I think it's, uh, the opposite of weird. I think a bunch of, I think a bunch of, uh, altered beings who have left or, or are maybe in the LDS church and are still kind of like maybe nuanced or something like that. I think a bunch of us getting together and being in an altered state and dancing with our ancestors to your song sounds like a good old time to me. So let's do it. Great old time. So come get your tickets, October 1st, Mormon Palooza and enjoy this episode, everyone. Hello. <laughs> That's funny. I I guess I I mean I'm, I should probably just like re-ask that question or something like that so that we can get going down that path. But so like those those sessions I'm I'm sorry, I'm talking about sexual trauma sessions. Now I'm mm-hmm. continuing the conversation that began before we hit record. But those sexual trauma um, groups, that's gotta be pretty heavy too. Right. I mean, that's, 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 that's a, that is no joke as far as like just the, what people are dealing with and all that kind of thing. Right. Um, they can be like, I, I'm not going to say they aren't heavy. 
Um, the way I run a group such as that, the way I would run an integration circle in general, always focuses on what's happening now and what we're trying to create. So it's different than therapy. Um, that's one of the big differentiators between coaching and therapy in general. Coaching is a little bit more forward focused. Um, so even when we're talking about sexual trauma, I hold space for people to talk about the trauma if they want to, if that's what they need to is come to group and have people just hear them because it's a trauma that we often don't talk about um, within culture. Like you don't go and talk to your friend about that. Like it just, it's not one of those things that is often talked about. So people can talk about that. And I always frame it that way. And it's also like with the psychedelic component of what are you working to integrate? What are you working to move forward in? So then the focus can often be more around that. Um, a lot of things that this, that people who've gone through sexual trauma, myself included, um, we, there's a few commonalities, um, like boundaries is massively hard for most of us because, um, just transparently a boundary, like we, we didn't have the ability to have a boundary in place. It was taken. Um, so knowing how to assert our boundaries is like a really commonality that, that this group of this demographic, I guess you could say, deals with. So it, it's talking about like, that's a big thing that we'll talk about in circles or a big thing that we'll talk about. Um, it's just like different parts of, of ways that the shared trauma shows up in our life and how we're working to maneuver through it. So it's not always heavy, which is really fun. Um, it can be for sure, but. And that, um, the boundaries thing, I mean, even if you're like, if someone's an ex-Mormon and listening to this, even if they didn't go through sexual abuse, I think they can relate to the the lack of boundaries because it's just as a Mormon boundaries just almost don't exist in the community. You know, it's like uh, you don't say no to a calling. You don't say no to your home teachers coming up. You don't say no to the Bishop asking you invasive questions or private questions. You don't really say no to the gossip mill in, you know? Um, and so I, I've noticed that a big theme in my life and my therapy recently has been boundaries and, and mm-hmm. setting those. Um, how, how do you work with people in that setting? With boundaries? Yeah. With boundaries. One of the things is I make sure people actually understand what a boundary is. Um, boundary generally, so that, that would be the first place and I can explain that in a second, make sure that they understand the way that I'm conceptualizing boundaries to get them to understand how to create a boundary. Um, when fundamentally a boundary is a request that you make of another and how you react if that request is not upheld. That's actually fundamentally like the basics of what creates a boundary. Um, and so f- if a boundary is crossed other than like, like there are ways that people directly cross our boundaries, but often we're not upholding the agreement aspect of what we said in a boundary. So that's the piece that I tend to work with people is what are you doing or what am I doing? Because that's where I have agency. I don't have agency in what other people do. I can request that people not touch me. But if I'm walking through a crowd of people and I'm being touched, what am I going to do? Am I going to turn around and say, hey, I've asked you not to. What What is my reaction that upholds that boundary? So, And we don't often think of it that way as what is our action in it, but that's the choice point. Man, so like you were saying, yeah. sorry. I'm just saying having it boiled down like that is really helpful, actually. I know, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, like, like we talk, we we talk frequently about setting healthy boundaries, but it the way you just put it, I I, I want to keep going down that this this right. conversational topic. Like there's a ton of things we got to get to and and want to talk about tonight, but but this idea of 
of boundaries. I, I think even as much as we talk about it, there's maybe like, uh, you know, if we're not clearly defining it, we can't, we can't adequate, adequately set boundaries. And if we can't adequately set boundaries, we can't uphold and, 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 and live those boundaries. And I, I think there's a big, uh, concern I know in my life. Um, and, and then also for a, a lot of people that listen to the podcast of, okay, well, what, understanding what is a boundary, which I, I think you just very art, well articulated that, uh, but, but also how, so, so if, if you're just now learning this and you're trying to, okay, I want to set healthy boundaries in my life. And you've got all these people that are like, like have been in your life this whole time and maybe have been um, violating your unspoken boundaries. Mm-hmm. That's a tough, that's a tough situation to try to like say, okay, okay, now I'm going to change the dynamic of this relationship. Mm-hmm. I mean, is this too have is this too big of a question to say, hey, yeah. Christine, how do how the fuck do we do this? <laughs> um, I wouldn't say it's too big of a question. There's so many components to that question. The first one that you said is the unspoken boundary. So I think that's one of the most crucial parts is in our mind when we're relating to other people, we have a boundary. But has that boundary been communicated? Because if it has not been communicated, it's actually not a boundary. Hmm. It's, it's something that exists in my brain, but hasn't been communicated to anyone else. So if anyone is crossing something, it's again, only crossing it in my imagination up until I name it. Hmm. So that, and you actually said that too, that's one of the hardest parts is how do we actually name whatever the boundary is? Because they can sometimes be abstract. It can just be this like, oh, I feel icky when that person does that thing. Why? I don't know. Um, So sometimes it can be as simple as saying exactly what I said. When you do that, it makes me contract. I don't know why. Is it possible to not do that thing? Whatever it is. It's easier to talk in boundaries if it's like a specific thing. So if I'm actually working with somebody, it becomes like, what is the actual boundary that they're asserting and trying to figure it out that way? Um, Not so ambiguous, but... um, but it, it it was fascinating. It was actually a Facebook post that literally broke it down transparently like that. A boundary is an agreement and a request. You can make a request of a person and then it's you that upholds it. And you that upholds your action if they do not adhere to or respect the request at the end of the day. And then, and then there's room for negotiation in that as well. And that's a piece that boundaries people kind of forget about boundaries. Boundaries should be a negotiation between two people. It's not, I assert this, you must do this. You're not going to have a very good dynamic relationship if it's (laughs) like that. There does have to be give and take between both parties. So it's, I request this and then have space for the other person to counter with a different request. Hey, I hear you. That doesn't work for me because of this. Can we find a middle ground? Then it becomes a a more workable boundary, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. A ton of sense. Can we, can we try like some specifics? Like, like, like you probably in your, in your coaching work, you, you, you probably come across some pretty, like, I guess, typical kind of things. Is that fair to say? Or is that, is it just every person's different? We're all snowflakes and, and we're all unique and beautiful and, and different. Or are there like common things of like, this one's a tough one for me and I'm having a really hard time setting that up. I, is that possible to even talk about? 
You you trying to ask her if there's more if there's an example she can provide? Or? Kind of. That was my yeah. You said it in three <laughs> words. I said it in forty three <laughs> paragraphs. So it's funny what you just said there. Are we all unique snowflakes? I think both things are true. We are all unique snowflakes. And there's massive commonality amongst all the trauma that we experience and the ways that that trauma lives in our life. Um, I'm not amazing at thinking of ex- ex- examples when I need to. I'm sorry, um, I, I shouldn't have put you on the spot okay. like that. I, yeah. But the one that comes to me, the one that I use when I'm teaching people is you have a drunk friend that's calling you all the time when they're drunk. That's like, it's just like a, an easy one that's thrown out there. You have a friend who calls you when they're really upset and drunk and um, you need that to not be a thing anymore. It's not good for you. So the boundary becomes, so this is where it can be pretty easy. You ask the friend, hey, don't call me when you're drunk. That's the request I make. I don't want to talk to you that way. We can talk the next day once you're sober, when you're drunk, it's not productive. It's explaining explaining what you need to, or I just don't want to. I don't want to is enough of a reason. Hell yeah. The actual boundary. So that's the request that you make. Don't call me when you're drunk. The boundary happens when they call you when you're drunk. Because it likely, and this is the part with 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 reshaping, which is your original question, how do you actually reshape maybe a dynamic in a relationship or reshape a boundary that's happened? It's likely the first time the boundary is going to fail. So going into it already expecting that the first time is going to be a failure because they're coming from a history of action. They're coming from a history of behavior coming up against that new request. So if my friend's been calling me drunk for six months, The next time he's drunk, is it likely he's going to remember yesterday that I asked him not to call me when he's drunk? Probably not. So part of the boundary then is I say, when you call me when you're drunk, I'm going to hang up the phone. In that moment when he calls me when he's drunk, if I continue to engage me, go down the same rabbit hole, I didn't hold my boundary. And it's as simple as that. It's not as easy as that, but it's as simple as that. And so he most people will then project, he crossed my boundary. But the problem with that is we're not having ownership of our action and our actual inaction in hanging up the phone. So there's not much that can be done there other than you're angry at your friend and your friend is probably not in a good state because he's, he's drinking all the time and calling you when he's drunk. So there's, it's not amicable. Mm-hmm. So the only way forward is for us to own our own behavior. That's a, that's a, that's a pretty good, uh, example off the top of your head i i'm feeling like mike i'm feeling like i owe you an apology because i i I might be that friend also i'm both sides of that analogy that you just used Mm -hmm. i don't really like taking calls from my drunk friends but also when i'm drunk i am a prolific drunk dialer (laughs) like it's man i might be admitting something about myself here this is pretty bad but you know, you know, you don't like to take them from some friends, but some friends are like, I, I, I would talk to you drunk all day. That's yeah. what it's like, Doug. But I'm just still like, this is, Christine, this is just like so good already. We're just diving in. I'm just I know, we loving it so much. Them. Yes, I'm so excited. Um, because one of the big things for me recently is learning for myself how much my boundaries, I've assumed people know. You know, it's like, oh, you just make that assumption. Um, oh wow! Yeah, like, almost like a fawning response, or like a, a, a expect that other person to know my needs, and so setting that boundary or just talking about boundaries can create so much freedom when when you know, like, okay, these are the spaces that our relationship, whether there's a friend or lover or whoever, uh, where we meet, and 
then you create, you create almost a container that then you can play in, but without those boundaries, you don't even really have a container. And it doesn't feel safe often. Like, like people think of boundaries sometimes as, Oh, I don't want to talk about boundaries. Boundaries are actually what create safety and connection because they give us an awareness and they give us a parameter of what's expected of us and having zero expectation in a situation going in where like, you don't know, like, am I supposed to talk? Am I like, what is it is paralyzing some expectation of how we're supposed to be in a room or in a relationship is kind of needed. Um, so again, coming back to Doug, your very, your question a while ago about like, how does that look like if you need to change a dynamic with an individual, one, expect it to be tense for a bit. Like it's very rare that, and even I'm the same way. If my partner asserts a new boundary with me, I understand boundaries and I still don't like it because the boundary encroach, it feels like an encroachment. They're setting something for their safety. So expect if, if you are going to try to renegotiate boundaries, and I think they should be renegotiated with people almost always, expect it's going to be tense for a bit while both people renegotiate that new agreement. That's the other uh, big, big hard part. That's good to expect. People will say, I said something and they didn't do it the first time. And I'm like, <laughs> yes. Well, you have maybe 18 years of behavior leading up to this one incident. So it, it it's also giving breathing room and space for things to change. Yeah. Change in the process. So yeah, I was gonna say sometimes it's that tension that's the hardest to, you know, you don't like the tension, so you avoid setting the boundary. Right. But that tension's just let it be there for a bit. And it's okay to feel tension. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't mean you're in the wrong or it's your fault or um, I mean, I think that's where, you know, as a very much a feeling type as opposed to a thinking type, it's, it's hard. Cause like, even when I set boundaries with my kids, as far as like what time they need to go to bed, you know, it's like, I feel like this, I don't know. I, I'm just, I'm not good at this. You guys, I'm learning is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> but part of that learning is learning that it's, it's okay for there to be tension in my relationship with my kids. I still love them. They still love me. Even they, if they say I'm a horrible father and they hate me they really love me. So like, and I love them and it's okay. We we can trust that security of that and trust that it's okay to, it's okay for them to hate me for a while. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is just might be therapy for Mike right now, but um, I'm loving it. That's okay. One other thing I will say about boundaries and like friendships and them changing, some people won't know how to adapt to new boundaries. And the hard part with that one is then and and this this is something I do work with clients on sometimes is, man, they're just not respecting me. Then is that a friendship you want to maintain? And then that becomes a much more difficult conversation. Or is it different parameters that you need within that relationship to feel safe and, and res- respected, basically? Um, but that is one of the harder things. If there are really, if there's like a total lack of boundaries and then going to create like really good boundary relationships, um, there's a lot, it's a lot of work that it takes to, to make that happen, but it's beneficial or relationship state. Yeah. So, <laughs> so maybe we can back up a little bit here. Sure. We, we really did. We did. We, we just kind of dive in, <laughs> which I love. Yeah. So Christine, you're, you're an integration coach. Mm-hmm. You do, uh, I think Reiki and, and you do yoga. Like you're just, you're sort of like this, uh, perfect person that we want to just 
drop into our lives so that we can follow you around and learn from you. But, you know, we hear that that term often that that integration coach that's mm-hmm. a uh, in this in these circles that's a, a thing that we hear about a lot but i don't think we've ever really kind of di- like dove into w- what does an integration coach do and what does that mean okay that's a great question so i actually think about integration in a couple different ways because i most people synonymize an integration coach only purely with psychedelics um, and they really didn't exist much before psychedelics, other than they probably should have. Um, <laughs> but in terms of psychedelic integration coach, what you're doing is you're helping somebody take this catalytic, this big experience that they've gone through and make effective change in their life with that. So that sometimes that's like, it can be as simple as what are new self-care ways that you need to look out for yourself. It can be as complex as how are you going to have that difficult conversation with your family? So it can be massive depending on what shows up in their experience. The other way that I look at integration is actually in terms of trauma, because trauma, all trauma fundamentally is, is unintegrated material from your life. And that can be anything. That can be a friend laughing at you when you were already having a bad day when you were eight years old that plays in your mind every time you're having a bad day. People don't often think of that experience as a trauma, but it is. It's unintegrated material, how you don't know what to do with that memory. So an integration coach, what what a good integration coach is, is somebody who can take somebody through the process that they need to go, which is completely individual process for every person. Um to integrate whatever material it is that they need to move themselves forward. So sometimes that's going to be trauma. Sometimes that's going to be a conversation. Sometimes it's just going to be life skills. Um, So it's kind of meeting people where they are and helping them as best as they can get to where they want to be through an integrated model. Last thing I'll say, uh, and then I'll open it up for questions, but is um, for integrated model, what I mean is looking at the whole person as well. Integration is a process. It's basically what it means to create more wholeness or more unity within your your experience or your life. And so any practice or anything that gets you towards that could be considered an integration practice and looking at the whole individual. So not just you have this physical ailment, we do this, it's you have this physical ailment, where else is that coming from? What is that doing at a soul level? Or what is that, What? how does your mind react to that physical ailment? So it's looking at the whole person as well. I love that. I mean... Oh, go ahead, Doug. You're saying no. I was just going to talk to you. You had a I, you, your your mouth was like full of a, of something to say, and I was just like, "Yeah, man, come on, get it." It was stewing in there. It's. Uh, I just think. I mean, I I even just love the word integration. Same. Think of it almost like a, a you know, dismemberment, rememberment, integrating those parts. Um, you know, as you talk about with trauma, the parts that have been split off. Um, I also feel like it's probably the most important part of a medicine journey. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you can say preparation, you can say the journey itself. I really just think it's once you, once you've like dug up that unconscious material and it's, and you have those images to work with, what are you doing with it? Because, you know, a lot of times it can go, they can just go right back down to the unconscious. They can even get repressed further because it's like, it gets lifted up and then you're like, wow, shit. Now we just have to get our defenses up even more because we don't want that scary thing to happen again. Mm-hmm. Um, and so working with those images, working with the process, and I, I think it's the most important part of it. I do too. Um, I spent probably my first four or five years with psychedelics more in like the recreational 
thing. I got tremendous therapeutic benefit from it. Not as much as I did once I was actually integrating what came through them. Mm-hmm. Um, they're fun. And the experience of themselves, in my opinion, should be somewhat enjoyable while you're in it. Not always. Like I've had plenty of experiences that are not necessarily enjoyable. But I agree with you, Mike. Like it's what you do afterwards because it's what you're doing with your life. Like everyday life is what we exist in. And so if you're living for that moment when you have your psychedelic experience, you're really missing out on things. And so figuring out how to make your life as magical as you want it to be. So it's like you have psychedelics and you have your life and it becomes like you're as happy in your life as you are in psychedelics. That to me is the ultimate goal. Mm. Um, If I'm like, that would be my goal if I'm working with somebody that they're so happy in their life that whether or not they have psychedelics is actually just like, it doesn't matter. I still work with them. I will work with them my whole life because I choose to, but that is just like something that they choose to, but they don't need it. If that makes sense. No, it does so much real quick Doug. i just wanted to point out one thing there with the um yeah i like how you said be just as happy i just say just as happy in this life or in this realm as in the other realm or mm-hmm. it says something like that right uh, because i feel like there's an element of you know i i don't want to shame other people's experiences and so if you want to be a psychonaut and live a lot of your life in the other realm and go explore that have at it um if that's your goal but I think most people, especially people who are listening to this podcast, their goal is to know they, they want to live more present and embodied in the waking realm. And they want psychedelics as a tool to do that. And so for those type of people, that's where integration is just so key and important. Um, anyway, sorry, Doug. No, that, that's that's fine, Mike. I, I It's funny that you brought that up because I was kind of thinking about sort of my... Uh, as we've been talking about this, you know, there's, there, there can be like a, maybe like an escapism that comes from, I mean, I, I, I'll, I'll admit to that. I, I do look forward to the, you know, the recreational or, uh, you know, Christine, you talk about living in the, the enchanted, did you say enchanted or magic? Some, some, something Probably along magic. those lines. Magic. Yeah. Probably. Like, so there's a, that, I mean, there's, there's a part that for me really looks forward to that. And, you know, Mike, I love that you talked about how integration is the most important part because it really is if 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 you're if you're like sometimes like me, if you're just using it as a way to escape and kind of trip a little bit and have this like fun recreational time, the, the, even if you're doing that, a lot of shit comes up, right? Mm-hmm. Stuff still is going to come up. And Christine, you had mentioned that you started out just kind of from that recreational kind of place, but there's still so much that comes up and can still be healing and, but, but integration is the important part of that. And so anyway, I was just, that was just a, a addition to Mike. You, you kind of triggered some things in me that I wanted to talk about, but Christine, I'm curious what, what got, I mean, psychedelics, what, how, how did you get in and like what happened and what was the intro there? And sure. What was the intro to psychedelics? Um, or if we need to go back farther first, we can do that. No, what was your what was your childhood how, like? How um, far how far do you want to time travel right now? Yeah. Well, so the intro to psychedelics ultimately came because I'd basically been depressed my whole life. Um as so I'm I'm 33 year old, three years old now. And I started working with psychedelics when I was about 20. Basically because I was working at a restaurant that I met people who 
were into like Coke and like other drugs. So they had drugs available. And I was like, okay. At that point, I couldn't remember ever being happy in my life. Um, I couldn't remember basically ever having any other emotion other than like depression and like shittiness. So I was just saying yes to anything. My first psychedelics was cannabis and people kind of actually tend to forget that cannabis can be quite psychedelic. But the thing that I, that cannabis did then, which it doesn't do anymore because psychedelics will change. Um, but it slowed my thoughts down. So it actually made it that I could look at what my brain was telling me instead of it just being this crazy whirlwind in the brain. So that was the first thing is like, and then, and the, in the basically first few times I smoked cannabis, I'm sitting there being like, I was just lied to. Like I could, like, I was like shamed if you smoke cannabis, like that's, that's like, you shouldn't have that. And I'm sitting there being like, I feel better now than I have for 20 years of my life. So in that moment, my whole thought process around drugs just basically goes from A to B. Like, I'm just like, I now don't believe anything anyone has told me about drugs because what they've told me directly counters my experience in this moment. I feel better in this moment than I ever have before. Who, who, sorry to interrupt. Yeah. I, I'm not trying to interrupt. I just, who, who was it that lied to you? Like, did, was it like the D.A.R.E. program? Do you have a religious background? Were you your parents? Oh, um, so I was raised Christian. Like I was raised like in a United church, like somewhat church background, but just in general, like, like drinking, you don't drink till you're 18. You don't want to touch drugs. So it was mostly probably parents. That's what I'm thinking of. But I, I also went to like a pretty academic school. So like it was only the bad kids who did drugs. And like, I was, I was like super academic in school, kind of nerdy, I guess you would say. Um, so all my friends in school would have been like drugs are bad. So I just heard that like over and over again. And then just cause I like changed friends due to starting work when you're 18 years old, 18, 19, being in a restaurant, I just had different friends. So that slowed my mind down. Then my friend introduced me and she was just like, one day you want to do mushrooms with me? I was like, Okay, sure. Um, and I can't remember if this was the very first time I did mushrooms. I think so. I was actually at a party with friends and I didn't know anyone except this one girl. And I ended up sitting on a back outside because I couldn't be in the house. I was like too overwhelming to be in the house of like a house party going on. So I just sat on the back porch talking to this dude for like six hours or something high on mushrooms looking at the sky. And just realizing, like, tapping into happiness, basically. So the first few times that I did mushrooms, I actually felt happy for the first time in my life. And not like I'd been on an antidepressant before then. Not the same way that an antidepressant will, like, give you this lift in mood. It it, it was actual, like, I felt happy. I felt joyous. I looked at the sky and was like, man, that's beautiful. And so I did that a couple times with my friend in, like, situations and then just started to realize like, man, this actually has value outside of just having like a trip. Yeah. So then I did a few intentionally just like to try to like figure out what the value was, but didn't know who to talk to about it. Didn't really go that far and ended up just in like the festival, I guess, community basically. Um, yeah. Had ups and downs experiences with that. I won't get into that too much because <laughs> there's positives and negatives to, to festivals. But then it was about six years ago that I got into ayahuasca, which is when um, changing around the whole dynamic and really using psychedelics intentionally for healing became a big part of my life. So that was about six years ago. Yeah. I want to hit on this tapping into happiness. Damn. The way oh, you said that. Shit. Same brainwave, Mike. Yeah, man. <laughs> I mean, you, can't, you can't pass up a phrase like that. Um, look, I mean, I can relate on some level with, 
I didn't feel depressed my whole life. I think um, mm-hmm. I went, it came in waves, um, usually around shame. Shame was a big like block for me, but I definitely had a happy childhood and I had, you know, um, happiness, you know, as a teenager, but when the, my depression hit before my Mormon mission at 19, for so many years, I mean, I would say 12 to 14 years, you, I knew what happiness felt like. And it's like, oh, I'm never going to feel that again. Mm. It's like this hopelessness of like, yeah, I'm, that's, that was something I felt. And now I don't have access to it anymore. Um, until really plant medicine. I mean, I had moments, I mean, leaving the church and processing through I, when I started really processing grief, alcohol, you know, I have a love hate relationship with alcohol, but I really think it opened me up to grief. Mm. Like when I would get, not when you, you know, I think you can definitely drink alcohol to numb. I mean, you do and people do, mm-hmm. but when, for me, when, if I get to like a one or two drink level, maybe three kind of thing, like I I'm at a state of drunk where it just like, it really helped me tap into my grief. Um, and then going from there to, you know, uh, a little bit of weed to then, um, well, actually quite a bit of weed, actually, what am I saying? <laughs> but then to, to <laughs> mushrooms, but I remember, you know, that, that first night on mushrooms, when I, I say I felt like me again, it was tapping into that happiness. It was like this source of happiness that I always had access to, but was blocking and, or something was blocking it. So I just love that. That's all I have to say is I love it. (laughs) To me, like tapping into happiness, I guess the reason I say it that way is like all of those states of being, they're just transient. Like happiness, people are like, oh, I want to be happy. You're going to be happy and sad probably most days of your life. They'll be maybe not always, but you're going to fluctuate through moments of it. And the problem sometimes with depression is that you get stuck in the state of being. You get stuck in the state of being depressed where I, I for sure got stuck in the state of being depressed. And so you're not switching back out of it. You're not entering a different disposition. And that's a fascinating thing, particularly I think with psilocybin, it's pretty reliable for bringing people at least a moment of time of happiness. The whole trip may not be happy, but usually some part of the trip is going to experience some form of bliss or some form of um, ecstasis or, or uh, awe as well, which can create forms of happiness. Um, which is one of the reasons I think it's really reliable medicine, but it can be hard. I don't want to like, it can be hard. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll jump in about happiness real quick. Yeah, sure. uh, so I, you know, I, I love having conversations about the concept of happiness because it can kind of feel like this elusive thing. If you look at it as like, like if you, if you look at it, this like depression, if you get over, if you get over depression, if, if it, if it ever swings back around, there's almost like a feeling of like a sense of failure or, or a sense of kind of, um, almost hopelessness, I think. And, and I love the way that the two of you are, are kind of talking about this as these, these, none of these things are permanent. None of these things are like, okay, I'm, I'm in this state of, happiness and if it goes away it's because of something i've done or it's because it's because i've um i've fallen away from it and i I can never get it back just the same is true about uh you know anger and fear and 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 sadness 
but but for those of us who have spent our whole life looking at others and thinking, why can't I be as happy as that person? Mm-hmm. You know, what what's the secret? Like, why does this person always seem happy? Which is also a very dangerous thing to think because who knows who's who's putting on a, a mask or or, yeah. or or faking it, you know, type of thing. But it's always a good reminder to me, like I've been in kind of a rough way for for the last little while. And, you know, Mike, there's something that you said this morning that we, when we were, then we were talking um, kind of about this. And I, I think you just, you, you kind of just repeated it where that, that tension that exists, you know, there's kind of that feeling when you're in like a down mode where you almost feel like, obligated to hold on to it because you've you've had all of these thoughts and you've talked maybe bad about yourself to yourself in your in your mind and and there's almost like this thing of if i let go of this if i if i if i don't like if i if i don't keep pouting or whatever word you want to use then i'm almost like betraying myself i I, i'm almost betraying this this tension that exists within me. I don't know if this is making sense. I, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm trying to make, I'm trying to make heads or tails of this as it's, as it's coming to me. And that's a, that's a really tough rut to get out of sometimes, mm-hmm. but there's something about, you know, Mike, when you said just, just allow for that tension, just, just hold it, hold space for it. There's something about even in that, you know, back to boundaries or, or, or whatever it might be about, keeping in your mind that that's human, that that's okay. Like <laughs> it's hard to convince yourself of that when you're in kind of a down mode. Mm-hmm. I can, I can attest to that because I've been flying high for years and we've been talking about psychedelics and we've been having the time of our lives. And I've kind of recently gone into a little bit of a down thing, but it's, there's something there that you learn on, on, you know, mushrooms or LSD or ayahuasca where it's like, Oh, none of this is permanent. Like there's a lesson that kind of sticks back there somewhere and rattles around that maybe you didn't have, or maybe I didn't have before where when, when you grow up thinking about the concept of God and the concept of Jesus Christ and, and an atonement and religion where everything matters forever, mm-hmm. everything matters for eternity because there's this constant, you know, this scale that is weighing all of the the good and the bad or the 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 dark and the light or the the beautiful and the ugly whatever you want to say and chipping away and getting rid of that concept of that scale and allowing this stuff to just sit and maybe even and maybe even welcome it or enjoy it or or sit in it and see what what it what it brings to you as i think a lesson learned through for me, learn through psychedelics and more importantly, through the integration of psychedelic experiences. Is mm-hmm. that, am I making any kind of sense over here or is this all a bunch of horseshit? No, you're making sense to me anyway. Um, one of the things I would say that you said there is that um, like that wallowing, that pouting, um, it's, some of it is just allowance, allowance for that state of being. Now there is, like I said before, sometimes some of them were negative emotions or negative states of being, they have a denser quality to them. So they have a weightedness to them. So that's something sometimes we just have to keep ourselves aware of that those more 
negative feeling, and I don't even like calling them negative emotions, but but they have a more negative feeling to them, um, have kind of a seductive quality to them sometimes. And so not ever allowing that, I don't think it's the way to be. Um, and and that like that's something sometimes I'll talk about with people with integration. I'll actually make it like a pie chart. Think of it as a pie chart and you're actually redistributing different parts of the pieces of the pie to different parts mm. of your life. Mm. So that you can create a more full pie where all aspects of who you are have their period where they get to be expressed. Um, so like for me, I can put that in context. A part of me was my playful part got really suppressed through the type of childhood I had and other things that we might get into, but we don't have to, but play was really, 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 really suppressed. And for, with depression, that's an actual very often thing is play. Um, play is suppressed. So part of what integration was and what psychedelics showed me was I had to figure out how to allow myself to play more. I literally had to reteach myself as an adult what play looked like as an adult. And like that, it started with coloring because the only thing I could think of was like, okay, I'm just going to color. Um, and coloring is like a massive part of my life now because it's a way that I can tap into play. But it's trying to reshift that part of the puzzle that was like like a 1% to like a 5% of my life. Um, so that's another way that I'll give people like a way of thinking through integration. Yeah, I love that. I love it too. Um, and it's so helpful, especially for, you know, ex-Mormons who uh, learned to, I did, we just grew up so fast, you know, given so much responsibility at such a young age, like at eight years old, you're getting baptized and making eternal commitments at 12 years old. You're getting, if you're a, a, a male, you're getting the priesthood or if you're a woman, you're going into young women's and, um, and then getting married young and kids young, just tapping into that play. Um, there's one thing I just wanted to kind of Doug, you were making total sense. And it was stirring some stuff in me because this whole notion, I'm speaking about ex-Mormons, we learn to put too much uh, of a judgment value, I guess, on our feelings in that, that their feelings or like our feelings are a barometer for something. And they're speaking a truth that isn't really there. In other words, like if I feel guilty, I must have done something wrong. Right. Or if I'm feeling these good feelings. The church must be true. And Joseph Smith was a prophet. And the Book of Mormon was is a historical document based off a of feeling. And so same with a depression. You can get in the state of, I feel hopeless. Therefore, it is hopeless. Yeah. But no, it's uh, you just feel hopeless. You feel hopeless. And, and I've noticed that as I go through, I'm more accustomed to the waves and the cycles, um, which is part of what type psychedelics has taught me is that I've had moments of intense hopelessness in the last few years, uh, triggered by different things. And it's like, where I felt so hopeless, but when I just name that and say, I feel hopeless right now and allow myself to just like feel hopelessness, sometimes that alone is enough to shift it after a while. If I just sit with that feeling of hopelessness, all of a sudden, you know, maybe, maybe sometimes only five, 10 minutes, sometimes a day or whatever. But then all of a sudden it's like, oh wait, no, it doesn't feel as hopeless anymore because it's not hopeless. There's always hope. Mm -hmm. And I think that's just important to keep in mind and not put so much of a judgment value on our feelings. Mm -hmm. Emotion. Man, Sorry. Go ahead. I just will say, I love it. Yeah. I, I didn't mean to jump in. I just was saying I'm loving this right now. This is, this is like, Soul food for me right now. Same. <laughs> awesome. 
I was just going to say, I watched a video and I'll out myself in this moment during the Johnny Depp trial. I was like hardcore watching all of it. But what I was really watching was just fast. To, what I watched the most was these YouTube behavioral breakdown videos about the intricacies of their face and whether or not they were lying or not lying based on these experts. That's what I watched the most. It was fascinating. I learned so much about what our face does. Um, but one of the things that I learned in there is on average, um, your, a, your face makes an emotion before you feel it and they move about every five, five to eight seconds. So any most emotions that you're feeling last on average, five to eight seconds. Oh, and really? then it moves on to the next one. And they were showing like it was because it's just like this behavioral, like they do this for other things as well. It wasn't just like this trial. But they were saying how, like, if you ever watch someone's face, you can watch just little emotions change intricately on their face. And it, they were doing this over like the course of this. And I was like, this is fascinating. Like from what I do for a living, I was looking at it through that lens, just being like, if people only understood that like emotions just move, they're just movement, they're just energy. They don't have meaning beyond what we give them meaning. And I will add, if we give them no meaning, then they cry for meaning. So we do have to give them something like the acknowledgement. Yeah. Like you said there a moment ago, the acknowledgement that I feel hopeless. Without that acknowledgement, it's crying to be seen. Mm. That emotion. And we'll just keep building and building and building until we acknowledge it. But what often once we'll actually acknowledge the emotion, that's when it gives the opportunity to move. Gosh, this is making so much sense. Like, honestly, it th there's such a difference for me when I'm when I'm flying high, like when I'm feeling happiness mm -hmm. versus, you know, you know, I, like I said earlier, I, I, there's almost this sense of like, I don't want to be disloyal to my depression. You know, it's like, I want to, I want to wallow in it. And, and so I, so I like, I, I, I think I'll, I'll never feel happy again. And, and, uh, I'm just going to watch a bunch of fucking documentaries and get angry and sadder and, 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 and madder or something like that. But I, but none of this happens when I'm, when I'm feeling good, like when I'm happy, you know what I mean? I don't sit there and like try to be observant of my happiness and try to give like, okay, what has made me feel so good? What has made me feel so happy? And what I'm hearing is maybe there's some value in just experiencing, experiencing happiness as it comes. Like just, just you, maybe, maybe, maybe trying to analyze and pick apart okay now why am i happy versus just feeling it and recognizing that this this is like presence right whereas when when you're in that when i'm in that down place when i'm in that depression it's almost like i it's almost like i try i go too hard to try to name all the things that are causing so mm -hmm. i'm i'm curious about that because this is like opening up a new thing for me of like yeah when i'm feeling blue I go hard on trying to keep feeling blue because I feel like I got to own being depressed. And so I, I, maybe I even come up with like, maybe not even quite authentic reasons for why I, other than like Christina, when you said that these emotions last five to eight seconds and they just kind of waft through us and then another one comes in well, oftentimes those things can stack up and it can buy, they can be some similar ones, right? Mm -hmm. But there's got to be this way. Shit. See, I'm already trying to solve it. I don't want to try to solve it. What I'm trying to do <laughs> is 
there, there's got to be some kind of awareness, I guess, is the word I'm looking for of just giving you, well, this back to the thing I say all the time, which is just, you got to give yourself a fucking break. Like you never feel like you got to give yourself a break when you're, when you're flying high. Cause you're just like, Hey man, here's to feeling good all the time. And you're shooting your guns in the air, like having the time of your life. But when you're down in it, it's just like, no, I'm going to, I'm going to sit and I'm going to be quiet and slow and, and, and really reserved and low key. And I'm just going to fake it for people when they're around. But when I'm not, I'm just going to sit here in it. So I don't know what I'm because I I I might be a, admittedly I might be contradicting your good advice which is I try too hard to name my 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 sadness and I don't give any thought to my happiness. I don't try to name it and then seek more of that out. I just am like yeah, I feel good. I don't know. I don't care. I don't know why, but I'm just doing it. I'm going hard and I'm laughing. I'm taking, I'm I'm making jokes and saying names and all that kind of stuff. Um, I don't really have a point here. I, I just started talking because okay. it's, when you were talking about the pie chart, you're talking about the emotions fall, uh, flowing through. I was just like, holy shit, this is like touching my heart in a big way. The part that stood out to me the most is how we analyze our sadness, but we don't do anything to analyze our happiness. Yeah. When we're happy, we're just in the state of happiness. Instead of like analyzing, like, how did I get here? Maybe I actually did some things that in my sadness I could remember doing and I would get to happiness again. But we don't spend our time analyzing our happiness in the same way that we do our sadness. Gosh, that's so true. Yeah, I think that's the point I was trying to make is that like maybe I ought to give myself a just a, a moment to say, okay, what like can we name this? Because I'm always naming depression. I can I can just start rattling them off. Mm-hmm. But in the happiness, maybe I got to give myself more of an opportunity to understand the the hooks or the or the triggers for that happiness. Does that make sense? It does. All right. I'm having a it tough does. time. I just I'm feeling I, a lot I haven't of feelings. thought about it that way. I've never yeah. thought about it that way, but I'm I'm curious now. One thing I look at it from the lens sometimes, and maybe this is what you're talking about. When people are in a good state, like, so I, some of the population I work with at one of the companies I work with is, is often people who are in depression. And one of the things for people who are a little bit in depression is you even mentioned this, they'll start to move out of the state, but it's almost like depression moves them back down. And so what I start doing is instead of like talking about happiness, because happiness can be this weird concept that is like fleeting and we can't even understand it when we're in depression. It's like, what are you talking about? I start to saying, how can you celebrate that win? Oh, what are you going to do to celebrate that moment? Because the celebration can be, and I and I I'll, I make jokes with people sometimes. And and there's Mel Robbins, I think that's her name, the one who made the like high five habit in the mirror, um, really popular. But like legitimately, I'll be like, go give yourself a high five in the mirror, like literally go. I'll have people do it with me on camera. Um, just little things that get them out of that state of depression, even if it's five seconds, even if it's just in that moment and they have a glimmer of a smile. For, for that moment of time, they had slightly different neurochemistry. Cool. Oh, man. So then it's slowly building those moments up. But I, I will say, coming out of depression for me, I got to this state, I know exactly what you were talking about earlier, where I felt like if I move into happiness, I'm betraying my depression, which is such a weird concept. To it's think such about. a fucked up concept, right? It's so weird. I'm betraying, I'm de- I'm betraying my depression. Like, Seriously? But I, I felt that way. A hundred percent. And then I don't, it's been so long now. I don't even know. I think one day I just realized like I have a choice. 
I now am in a place that I have a choice. Do I want to be depressed again or do I just want to live happy and learn how to live happy? Oh, um, shit. Yeah. I kind of love that a lot. I also like the idea of mirror high five. I never heard of mirror high fives, but you can guarantee I'm going to go give myself some fucking mirror high fives tonight. I was, I was already picturing it when she was saying that. I'm like, Oh, right. Yeah. I'm so excited for it. <laughs> They're awesome. They're a little moment of just you and yourself in the mirror. Um, little caveat. I was obsessed with looking at myself in the mirror. There's something about like the, when I was a kid, I don't do it so much anymore, but when I was a kid, I would sit for hours and just gaze at like the being that was me, but wasn't me. Um, and so there's, there's, there's like a unit there. There's something there that you can connect with yourself in a different way. If you want to try a radical thing and I give clients this, um, who are ready for it, but it's really hard. Tell yourself you love yourself in the mirror. Look at yourself in your eyeballs and tell yourself you love yourself. Um, if you do it sincerely, that can change the way that you look at yourself. Yeah. Holy smokes. I've even had a, uh, I think maybe I've shared this on the podcast before, but it bear sharing again, had a moment. Um, I think I was a little high. Um, so let's get, let's get weed some credit here, but I went to go wash my face in the bathroom mirror. And I look up and I had this memory of me as a child. I don't know how old I was, maybe like eight, wondering what I was going to look like as an adult. Mm. So, and he was looking, I was looking in the mirror at eight years old thinking like, I wonder what I'm going to look like when I'm an adult. And so I had all of a sudden that memory flashed in my mind. And so I'm looking in the mirror and imagining my eight-year-old self looking at the mirror and seeing me. So it was almost like this connection through time with my eight-year-old self in the mirror. And it was like uh, emotional. It was powerful. It was a cool moment. It was almost like, oh, here, here's what you're, you're going to look like. And it's pretty fucking good. So you're welcome. <laughs> wow, look how beautiful you turned up. <laughs> Did eight-year-old you think that, that you're going to become this beautiful being? At the time? Mm -hmm. No, that's a good question. I think eight-year-old, I, I don't think he felt beautiful. That it, you know, he didn't feel handsome or you just, uh, yeah, I don't think he did. Um, yeah, the childhood stuff goes deep, right? I'm just talking about it. Like it's, uh, I don't think he felt attractive or, um, wanted. He just felt like, uh, shy and reserved. And I don't, there were moments, I, I guess at eight, maybe I wasn't as shy. That came later, but yeah, I think he'd be pleasantly surprised. I think he was. <laughs> I, you, the two of you talking about looking at your childhood childhood selves in the mirror yeah. just unlocked a memory that I've not had or shared. Well, I guess ever since I was an adult, like you just I'm this is a freshly um, this is a fresh new memory. Are you ready for it? I'm sorry. So. Uh, when I was a kid, I would go in the bathroom and I would I would get my hair wet and I would comb my hair in different ways to look like, oh, if I comb it this certain way, I look like a tiger. If I comb it this way, I look like a bear. Yes. If I comb it this way, I look like a wolf, right? And I, I used to do that. Like, I, I remember like Saturday mornings, I would do that before watching cartoons. <laughs> And then 
Oh man, shit. Uh, so then one time I showed my dad that I could do it, right? Dad, look at this. I can comb my hair and look like different animals. And, uh, yeah, his response wasn't all that great. I mean, he was like, that's, that's silly. You, you, you can't, you don't look like a tiger. You don't look like a bear. You don't look like a wolf. <laughs> so I stopped doing it. Um, this is such a silly memory for me to be getting kind of emotional about, but like, I'm just thinking about little, little, little Doug, little Dougie, uh, you know, wanting to whatever, whatever that is, as far as like wanting to look like those different animals or wanting to, you know, whatever that fucking hair style was, I'd like to tap back into that. But I'm just thinking about, you know, the imagination part of, you know, a, a child. And also the the love, Christine, that you were talking about, just the freedom of God. I by the way, I love that you said that you used to stare at yourself and see that other being that existed. That knocked me on my ass when you said that. But yeah, I'm just kind of thinking about that. Like, when's the last time I just stood in front of the mirror and loved on Doug and and maybe combed my hair to look like a, a tiger? <laughs> you know, like why not? Let's do it. I know even saying it out loud is such a silly thing. I can't believe I'm sharing this memory because I it, it just came flooding through. But there's something cool about, you know, we talk a lot about the power of imagination and the unfettered, uh, you know, liberated freedom of, you know, when you're a kid, you be whatever you want. You, every, and, and, and the rules change. Doesn't matter what you're, you, do, you know, you, Mike, last week we talked about Calvin Ball. You know, the rules don't matter. The points are made up and you can just change it as you go type of thing. Right. Mm -hmm. And then here we all, the three of us are sitting here talking fondly of the time when we were kids and we could stand to look at ourselves in the mirror, which maybe the two of you can still do that. That's a, that's a thing I struggle with. Like I, I look in the mirror and I'm like, God damn, dude, you're getting old. Your hair's receding. You're getting a little fat in the face. Like it's, I want to give, I want to do this mirror exercise and the high five's coming too, I think. <laughs> high five is easier, to be honest. High five is easier than telling yourself you love yourself. Yeah, I can imagine. But I will say if you, if, if you can tell yourself you love yourself, like for anyone who's actually in like a, a decently hard time, you kind of mentioned that, Doug. If you can do that regularly, the first few times it feels, it feels inauthentic. Like it all, often you just feel like you're saying something that doesn't have meaning but there's one day when you'll say it and you'll feel it at the same time and it's fascinating that the day that that happens so it is one of those things that you do kind of have to practice and make a practice of for it to have value not saying that I shouldn't I shouldn't even put it that way some people will say it the first time and feel it and it's totally fine a lot of us feel inauthentic when we first say it I did for sure but it was a practice that I used um to start to cultivate love for myself we don't really have it most of us growing up. So I haven't met somebody who at 20 years of age was fondly in love with themselves and like, not like a narcissistic way and like an <laughs> authentic way. But it's something that I think, I, I don't know if it's just part of the human condition for us to learn or if other cultures have that embedded more in their, their cultures. I'm not sure. It's not in ours. I don't think, but yeah, it's yeah. I, I'm not sure about other cultures, but ours, we, you know, the comparison thing is a real deal. Like, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. anyway. I actually wanted to touch on something that you mentioned because I didn't want to just skip over it. In that moment when you shared that really cool thing to you as a kid that you could do, 
and your dad didn't validate it or give you anything, um, he didn't respond in a way that felt meaningful to you. Um, that is something in like, just coming back to the beginning of the call, that's really crucial in sharing circles or in integration circles that when someone shares that they gain something of feedback back to them, if they want feedback, and that's something I always ask, where they feel validated in what they shared. Because, mm. and not necessarily validated, that doesn't have to be the emotion, but that they feel heard, that they didn't, it's one of, it's a really damaging thing. And, and we, this happens to all of us in little ways, um, where we sh- say something and it's not heard or understood or anything. It's like one of the worst feelings. So making sure that's one of the things that I do if I'm in a group with people is making sure no matter what, that's that, that they leave feeling heard in some regard that I've mirrored something that they're, they feel, Oh, she got it. She understood. She, she heard me. Yeah. And uh, it, uh, yeah, agreed. And and I, you know, I'm, I'm putting myself in my, my dad's shoes and you know, your, your eight, nine year old son comes in and says, look, dad, I can comb my hair like a tiger. You're like, I don't know what the hell you're talking about. Like he's, you know, he's doing his best. He's, you know, mm-hmm. But yeah, but I yeah, there is something about that validation of like, yeah, buddy, look at you. You look like you look like a tiger. Wow. Holy smokes. Where'd my son go? You're a tiger. You know, Yeah, I feel kind of bad, Doug, because when you were telling that, I was chuckling a little bit. Oh, no, it's a chuckle story. Like, yeah, don't worry about me, man. I was picturing I was picturing your son saying the same thing. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) my I think my son probably does the exact same thing. (laughs) He just seemed like him in that moment, and I loved it. And uh, and Doug, you have a lot more hair now to work with. I bet you can make a whole shitload of animals. Yeah, man, I can make all sorts of animals. Man, I could be a flamingo. (laughs) That'd be fun. That'd be super fun. Well, I've uh, effectively. Screeched this conversation to a halt with my story about combing your hair like different uh, animals. I was go ahead, Mike. While we're on the subject of childhood, Christine, do you want to you want to chat about yours? Oh, sure. (laughs) What do you want to know about my childhood? Um, I mean, I'm I'm one of those people who I had a pretty good childhood. Like I there. And then there's aspects that were really, really, really challenging. But if anyone who meets my parents, anyone who meets my family, like I had good parents. I had good parents who loved me, um, instilled really good values in me, um, in our family. Um, we just, I had, I had some unique circumstances growing up that, um, that just created dynamics in the family that were really difficult. So I have a twin sister who was born. 23 minutes after me um, with cerebral palsy and is later diagnosed as being on the autism spectrum. And she was, she's functional. She has a job. She's, she's amazing. Growing up, it created this weird dynamic because I was very capable and she had some limitations. Um, Mm. My mom always called them. She, she was referred to, we didn't use the word disabled in our household, um, which I have a ton to say about that. We didn't use the word disabled in our household ever. Sarah, my my sister's name is Sarah. She had challenges. Mm-hmm. The one thing I will say what that did to me is it immediately nullified any challenge that I had. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, and my mom did not mean to do this. Um, but there are very quick little things that she would say just to like move the conversation along that would basically do that it would just nullify the challenge that I was going through um without meaning to so some that that was one of the reasons that contributed to depression um simply because 
like she had so much more needs needs than I did. She didn't, she didn't, but she did in a way. And so it just created like a really fascinating dynamic. Um, but it was what happened about a year, two years ago, that transformed the way that I think about my childhood is um, I've been working with psychedelics for, like I said, like I'm, 12 years at this point. So six years ago, I'd been working with them for about six years. Started getting, um, working with ayahuasca. So I was doing that for about two and a half years, pretty regularly, like probably every two, three months I was going for like a weekend with ayahuasca. And then I received some really troubling images that I didn't know how to make sense of, of childhood sexual trauma. And through them being shown to me, I went through basically... I think, I think a common reaction. I basically denied that it was me. Um, must be someone else's vision. Must be seeing the vision of someone else. Uh, I did like this whole process of like trying for it not to be me. But every time I worked with any psychedelic, it just got closer and closer and closer. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I was working with different plant medicines. Um, so I've done dietas, which is like part of the ayahuasca tradition. And then I've also just done a diet that's not connected to the tradition, but it's still working with plants. So I was doing, working with Sananga, which is a eye drop medicine um, from the Amazon. One of my favorite medicines. What's it called? Sananga, S-A-N-A-N-G-A. And it, the quickest way that I'll describe Sananga is it taps you into clarity, both physical clarity. It actually, actually, it's been shown to help with like glaucoma and physical ailments with the eyes but also like spiritual energetic clarity. So I was working with that. I was doing a diet of 30 days of that. And then um, worked with this habe or rape blend um, that showed me all the trauma that I had suppressed my entire life of being, a, um, basically being touched when I was like a really young kid. I won't get into it, but um and I started seeing all of these images. And that was the first time. And so it wasn't even technically a psychedelic. It was a combination of Sananga and Jape. And, but I was ready. I, and I, I literally, the way I look at it now is all the psychedelics has slowly tapped me into this opening where I was finally ready to see like the depth of trauma that I had actually experienced. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because even though the images were shown to me, it was actually my body and the response that I had through my body that confirmed that it was true because because psychedelics show us that things that aren't necessarily true. It's not like it's 100%. Here you go. This is true. But it was like, so I had to rectify like, okay, I'm being shown this, but it was more the way that my body responded um, that confirmed what had happened. And then over time, other things I got to understand more of kind of what happened. Um, and then went through a massive process of learning how to heal that with psychedelics and with everything that I had learned. Um, so it was really fascinating. I'm actually really, it was a fascinating process to go to because I'd already learned so much about healing before my body was ready to let me know what had happened to me. But I'd also gone through like, and that's, I'm pretty sure why I'd been in depression since I was such a young, young kid, more than the family dynamics, because it had happened so young. Um, and I literally couldn't remember a single time that I felt happy. Um, by the time I was about eight or nine years old. So that's some of my childhood. (laughs) Um, So as you, as you went through that, that period of kind of discovery, Mm -hmm. 
So you, you, you probably have a really good way to identify with people you're working with. And um, maybe you're aware of some of the pitfalls they could go through. What are some of those things? that Because people probably don't know what to expect. Jeez, I got a fire going. <laughs> I was about to say, what's happening there? <laughs> yeah, my candle caught on one of my little rope things and it just started causing a fire. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> All good. So, but but back to back to what I was trying to ask is, you, you know, how how serendipitous mm-hmm. for you that you know you're, you're starting to get those images and then through the process of the dieta, the hape, hape rape. I don't know. Yeah, actually, like yeah. Christine said it. It was like a how did you say it? Hape hape. hape. Yeah. Well, yeah, the R's in, in Portuguese are like an H, I think, mm-hmm. is why I I don't know. That's how it was told to me to say it. So that that homeboy up there speaks Portuguese. Yeah. Okay. He's right that. here on my right. screen. I don't I don't know where I'm pointing on your screen, but he's right here. <laughs> um. So I, I, I gosh, it's taken me a long time to ask this question, but I'm just basically saying if someone is if someone is is coming into that first wave of kind of discovering some of this stuff. Mm-hmm. What kind of what, what kind of coaching do you provide them, or, or or what kind of pitfalls should are are there, and 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 how can they sort of like start that process of healing? How can they start moving toward? Okay, I I, I got to deal with this. I got to I got to I got to face it. That was like eight questions, but you you get my yeah. okay yeah um that's a really good question. And the first part is probably the hardest part, particularly with this type of trauma. It's actually owning that it happened. Mm. Most. And I was like this. I denied it for ages. Um, I mean, I denied it most of my life, but I now know I know very well what happened to me Um, and happened for me. I really struggle with what happened to me at this point in time based on all the work that I've done, but it that did take me a long time to get there. But the first thing is actually acknowledging and owning that the trauma happened. Because if we don't actually do that and that that's how, when I when I run sexual trauma circles, part of the intro that people go through is naming the ages of their trauma. Because doing that and actually saying, this is when this trauma happened to me, you're naming that it happened. And and I've had some people who come and they just that act alone of saying this happened at this age. Because you don't have to say anything else. You don't have to go into the details. You're just naming the age. So you're acknowledging it. That alone was a transformative moment for them because they stated that it happened. So that's basically the first thing for anyone to get on any healing journey of any type of trauma is actually acknowledge that the trauma happened, that it's there, that it lives within you somewhere. Then it becomes how you, how to heal it. And that's really, really, really unique to each person. For me, mine ended up being a combination of um, inner child work. Um, And it was through my inner child that I actually found a lot of healing. I really worked with my inner child. Um, and it was, she actually showed me all of the images in that one thing that I talked to you about. And she coached me through how to find healing. It was fascinating experience. And for me, it was actually finding love for the person again. 
Um, but that was based on the history that was based on who the individual is. And I don't name it, um, just for a reason, but, um, yeah. So, so that was my path. It's like forgiveness and finding love again. Um, coach through my inner child. She told me that she said that I, I need you to still love him. And, and it was so fascinating in this moment. I'm so, I'll just give you guys like a quick synopsis. I'm like in this experience, not wanting to see what I'm seeing for the first time. I'd never had that in psychedelics. Like some people have that and they talk about it being a bad trip. And I'm sitting there being like, oh my God, I don't want to be seeing this. Like I, I, I don't want this. And there's nothing you can do to make it stop. And then my inner child came and just basically literally talked me through and said, I need you to love him. And then I learned and I, it's not in that moment. I was just able to like love the person again, but that was my path towards healing. And I want to make it clear my path towards healing because every single person has a different path towards healing. Some may never, ever be able to find forgiveness and that's okay. You know, that's okay. And, and it's funny in the circle that we talk, that I run sometimes we talk about self-help books or like this, like idea of self-help books. And what a self-help book ultimately is someone's story of how they help themselves. It doesn't mean that that's how, what's going to work for somebody else. It might, it might, but it's not like this prophecy that, Oh, this is what I did. Now you need to do it too. Cause if it was that simple, um, people would be able to heal easier, but it's not that simple. Healing is an individual process. I love that. Jeez. There's so much here that I'm just loving. And uh, first off with, um, you were mentioning that um, you kind of had that somatic confirmation and well, one, you're speaking to the, the importance right now of integration and how crucial it is, you know, without integration, without people to like work through this with like, you know, in a psychedelic journey, you can see all sorts of images and you don't know really how to make sense with it. That's why working with someone who's experienced in working with people to integrate this content is so crucial mm-hmm. because, you know, I've had uh, examples, you know, people reach out um, and they talk about some imagery that comes up in their journeys. And sometimes, sometimes it can be very symbolic. You don't know if it's actually real, like real, I'm putting in quotes. So like mm-hmm. if it happened in the waking realm, if it's a symbolic thing that happened or, um, or if it's a memory, you don't know. And that's why integration is so crucial and so important. Um, and the other part is just that, you know, I, I believe that our own individual psyche has the key to our own healing. Mm -hmm. So it's in there. And that's why working with our dreams or working with the unconscious, working with imagination, working with our inner child, can be so powerful because Doug, we, it ties back into the snowflake thing we were all talking about. Yeah. uh, We all have some shared archetypal collective experiences, but we all are individual snowflakes and what is right for one person could be completely wrong for someone else. But in working with your psyche, and that's what the power of psychedelics and the power of imagery is your psyche is giving you the, the breadcrumbs or the, the, instructions on how to heal. And so if you're working with a practitioner who knows how to guide you through that inner world and that psyche, you begin to uncover the the keys to your own healing. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like that's what you've done. And it's, it's powerful. Thanks. It was a hard process. Like when I, when it started to be revealed, 
to me. And like, like I said, it was about a two year process before I was ever actually able to accept like, okay, I'm going to accept that this happened to me. And it, it wasn't until I accepted that I'm going to accept that this happened to me, that my body would respond because it wouldn't respond when I wasn't willing to say yes. Um, yes to the response, even like I was shutting it down so much that the body couldn't respond to it. But once I actually said, okay, I, I'm at least I'm going to try on what it feels like to believe this, then the body just went into a massive cascade of response. And, and it was honestly, um, some of it's really hard to explain, but um, moving through some of the trauma somatically, I would have like convulses, like basically with from a visual lens would look similarly to like a, a full on seizure. Like I was literally shaking that hard. But because I worked in it worked with yoga for 10 years at this point, and I'd worked with uh, I, I'd understood how trauma is lodged in the body, I understood about shaking, I'd understood all of these things through all the mechanisms I had, I was able to release it. And so I'm actually really grateful that my memories didn't let me know that really until I was at a point of able to re to release it. Um, and that's a place that I actually struggle sometimes with some clients who have memories their whole life that they don't know what to do with. In some way, I'm really happy. My body knew how to suppress that somehow. Um, and that's what's fascinating too with trauma is we do, we suppress it. And it's, I wouldn't say it's often that people are shown that they're they went through some abuse as a kid, but it, it happens more regularly than people think. Not not necessarily just sexual abuse, but any abuse that they just suppressed happened to them, but lives in the body. And so it still is existing in their day-to-day -day existence and the way that they're showing up to life, but they don't understand it. So then it becomes this even greater disconnect. But the most amazing thing happened once I actually worked it through my body, um, I'd had this low-grade anxiety that... I, my whole life like I was always just kind of like ready to jump at anything once I actually posted it through my body for a long time that went away and I don't have that anymore wow. and that was the other thing that showed me that it was real because once I went through all the healing that thing that I carried that like vibration of of anxiousness is no longer held within me I'm just, I'm just giving you a high five right now in a way <laughs> and a hug because that's, uh, I'll get one, Mike. I'll get one, Mike. Yeah. Three, three way high five. Awesome. Um, just powerful story. And, and, you know, I just want to say thank you for sharing that. Um, oh. because I think in so many levels, so many aspects of that are incredibly helpful to people listening to me. I know. And so I think to uh, a lot of people who will listen to this episode. Um, so thank you. Yeah. You're welcome. The biggest thing I would tell anyone with any type of trauma is get a somatic therapist. Like I'd already learned, like I I'd studied yoga. I was a yoga teacher. I like, I understood somatics and that understanding is what helped me heal. If I didn't have that understanding previously, it would have been a much harder process. And I know that I'm very aware of that. And so that's one of the first things anyone with this type of trauma, any work with somebody who really understands the body, because that's where it lives. The trauma doesn't live in your mind. Mm -hmm. It shows up in your mind, but it lives in the body. And I think sometimes we can forget that thinking we have to think our way through it. You actually have to feel your way through it.
And that's, that's also what's really painful and really hard. And, into, and integration, ultimately, a lot of what comes in integration is feeling. And feeling that which we didn't allow ourselves to feel at the time because we didn't have the resources or ability to feel it. That's what I love. It's like you were just talking about your psyche almost prepared you in a way of like, no, we're not ready to feel this now. So we're going to protect you from it. And then, yeah, we're going to start leading you down a path where you're going to start to learn how to get in touch with your body. You're going to start to experiment with uh, these substances and, you know, maybe more of a playful way at first, kind of like, we're going to get you ready for it. But Mm -hmm. uh, until it's like, that's so cool. Yeah. And then it's like, okay, now it's time, you know, and you Mm -hmm. can tell it's like, it's time. It was like, it's like, I can just picture something kind of bubbling to the surface and you felt it at first and it got closer and closer and closer until it came out. Yeah. I don't know. I just, uh, I just I have a lot of gratitude right now for this episode, Christine, and for uh, you coming mm. on and sharing all this. Um, yeah. If we weren't even, if we didn't even release this thing, this has been so helpful to me. Like, honestly, I hope, I hope, I hope anybody listening gets even a fraction of what I got out of it. So Christine, let me, let me represent the listener for a second here. Okay. You talked about, you know, if, 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 if that's something someone wants to go explore and if they're starting to come across that, find the right somatic healer, find the right coach, find the right group. What if people listening are like, I, I think it's Christine. <laughs> like, I think that I, I think Christine might be the one I want to work with. How, how can they, are you accepting clients? Can people mm-hmm. find you? What's what's the best way to do that? Thank you. I'm not on social media because I learned a long time ago social media is bad for my mental health. So people can get me on my website and via email. I am old school. So my website is rawproject.ca. R-A, no, not .ca. Why did I say that? Rawproject.org. Um, raw, R-A-W. And it stands for the Radically Authentic Fullness. So it's a, it's. Yeah. Project of making people radically authentically whole. That's like the idea behind it. Um, helping people, not making people, helping people achieve and get to their own radical authentic wholeness. Um, so yeah, ra- go there. You'll be able to read a lot more about me and figure out if you want to work with me. Um, and then through that, you can get in touch with me or my email is everything's on the website. <laughs> It'll be in the show notes too. Um, okay. But I love raw, authentic wholeness. Yeah, honestly, that sound that you hear is me logging onto your website, right? And also, I'm old school enough that I say logging onto your website. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. Yeah, I mean, inter- integration. Integration can be a scary concept. I love the word, like what you said, Mike, earlier. Um, I love the word integration. I've, I'm actually starting to navigate away from healing. Um, cause healing can have a weird concept in the mind, um, that what we're actually just doing, trying to do is integrate, just trying to feel more whole. And I'll end it this way. I listened to a podcast the other day where they defined integration, um, the way that they find, define it to kids is actually one of the best definitions. It's connecting things that are different. Oh, wow. Yeah. Connecting things that are different and the process of doing that. Man, that's cool. Mm-hmm. I love that. Bye, Christine, you're awesome. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I guess that, I mean that's how that's how I'm like. Thank you so much for tonight. I'll 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 be honest with you. I was in, I was in almost, uh, 
ducking out of tonight just because I wasn't I wasn't feeling energetically up for it. Mm-hmm. And I could not be more relieved that I got a chance to chat with you tonight. Like, mm-hmm. like I believe me when I say that I'm I was so close to just saying, Mike, I think you're on your own. I'm so happy that I came tonight. Like this was mm-hmm. so beautiful and so beneficial. I'm glad that you came too. Um, I'm curious, just the like coach and me, what got you to show up and not bail? Do you want a, a fancy answer or do you just want the real answer? I want the Fresca answer, Doug. You want the Fresca answer? Um, obligation and loyalty to Mike. Okay. Um, like I my 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 desire to not let mike down was stronger than my desire to just be like i'm just not feeling i it, it was that thing about being loyal to my to my depression i i've kind of been in a rough way uh, mm-hmm. the last couple of days i'm I, like i said i can't emphasize this enough i could not be happier that i came to have this conversation tonight but you know how it is like you just like when you're in that it's hard to get up for things and like, Oh, we're, we're, we got to hold a conversation and, and kind of hold space for one another. The three of us are holding space for each other. And I just didn't know that I was, I didn't know if I was up to it. And then it was the, in fact, it was the perfect thing. Cause I was like, well, I'm not going to do that to Mike. I'm not going to do that Chris, to the, to Christine. But the, it started out perfectly because when Mike was having technical difficulties at first, I found my sort of, my counterweight to Mike kind of worrying about his, his tech. I found that it kind of overwhelmed the thing of like, Oh, I'm in, a, I'm in the dumps and I don't want to be, I was like, Mike, we're going to be fine, brother. Like it's okay. And so the combination of that, and then the last hour and 43 minutes of my life have just been eye opening, like very. Yeah. So I don't have a great answer. That's the answer. Beautiful. Yeah. I was just curious. Loyalty is a good thing, you know, And you touched on something really interesting there, in my opinion, because sometimes I tell people, like, listen to your emotions. If you need to take the day off, take the day off. And sometimes it's lying to you and it's not the right thing and it's not going to give you what you need. And that's sometimes the hardest thing is then we have to cultivate discernment. When is it one and when is it the other? And there's really no, no, at least I have not come across a magic pill on that one but something had you show up today. So beautiful. So, something did. And and it's, yeah, I I, I agree wholeheartedly with, with what you're saying, because there, in addition to, I, I love that you said, and, because I'm, I mean, we're, we're big on, uh, and not, but around here, mm-hmm. but, uh, and I just say, but, uh, <laughs> did you guys like that? Did you, yeah, did you notice perfect, that? Perfect. And, uh, you know, sometimes, Sometimes before good things, there are kind of rough things. Like, like sometimes we have to, sometimes we have to go through that to get into the good, right? Mm-hmm. Um, easier said than done. Mm-hmm. And this is, uh, you know, this is a um, tiny little microscopic example of me coming on the fucking podcast. Like it's a tiny little thing, but it is a good analogy for, sometimes we're we're listening too hard to the depression and it's it's kind of hard to get motivated to do the things that we know to do 
you know, we know them. We 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 list them all the time, and we know the things that will help get us out of that. But we're just like, oh, but no, I'm it, I'm just gonna sit in it for a little while longer, you know. And sorry to like uh, reveal all this to you right now, Mike, after the end of the conversation. But that's that's how I was feeling tonight. <laughs> no, I I think it's just added to all of this, and so yeah, thank you, thank you for sharing it too, and. Christine, I hope people come in and go out and find you because, uh, Same. like I just, you're, you're wise, authentic, you're raw, authentic. What was the whole, they just, you, you, raw, you authentic you wellness project, right? Yeah. You radiate those values. It's one thing to, to name, uh, like it, your, uh, business, your coach, your practice that mm-hmm. it's another thing when you radiate those qualities and so mm. in which you do. And so thank you. Thanks. That's probably the best compliment someone's given me. I appreciate that. It's it's funny having to like put your, like you guys have to do that. Mormons on mushrooms. You have to put a label. Like what am I putting myself out as? Uh-huh. And so I was like, well, that's the only thing I can think of that I stand for is this thing. So I guess that's what I am. I tried doing my name. Like I was my name for a year as my coaching. And I was like, that feels too egocentric. I had to like <laughs> step away from that. <laughs> but, but yeah, radical authentic wholeness. I had wellness for a while. I, it, I don't know. The, the idea was get raw. Like that was what like was in my mind is get raw with yourself. And then that'll help you create wholeness. So yeah, girl, that thing, that name works on a lot of levels. Like the, obviously the acronym is dope as fuck, but like raw itself mm-hmm. is, is like what people are looking for. Right. It's like, let's tear it back to, and, and get it all the way down to that raw emotional level. So I, I think you nailed it. Thanks. Thanks. thanks for the opportunity guys it was nice to talk to you this is delightful yeah thank you very much <laughs> all right take care of you too one Bye. more one more group high five before we leave yeah, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> all right all right good night guys good night